Well, good morning. Welcome to Parkway. My name is uh, Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad that you are with us uh, this morning. As Dave read, we will be in Romans uh, chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. I feel a little vulnerable without a big pulpit to hide behind, but we will uh, we'll get through it together as we consider this passage that probably has the word circumcision and circumcised more than you've ever read in your entire life. And so we will uh, talk about that this morning. Before we get to that, I want to tell you a little bit of a story. So this year, Casey, my wife, and I will celebrate five years of marriage. And uh, we didn't actually meet until I was 34 years old. And, uh, and so I had an ex- uh, extended season of, uh, of singleness. And, uh, and so kind of as a result uh, of this, both of my siblings were married for uh, well over a decade before I was. So my older brother, who's a member here, Uh, My younger sister, who's four years younger, both of them had been married for well over uh, a decade whenever I actually met Casey. And so because I had already quit my uh, job, I worked in the corporate world when I was first saved right out of college, and uh, I'd already quit my job, and I started seminary. And so because I was this poor seminary student working at uh, Starbucks, which has had a bad week, and uh, and then also working at uh, a church as an intern, making like $12,000 a year. Then my mom took pity on me, and she promised me that uh, if I ever got married, uh, then she would give me her wedding ring uh, as a gift to kind of help me, again, because I'm a, a poor seminary student. And so uh, she did this in order to, uh, to be gracious to me. I think also maybe it was a bribe. You know, she kind of thought, uh, let's try to get the ball rolling here a little bit, so I'll give you a diamond ring if you'll get married, because she uh, really wanted me to get married, and I didn't have any prospects on the horizon and kind of had a lot of relational baggage from not getting saved until after uh, college. And so uh, she offered me this gift, and so then I met Casey uh, whenever I was 34, and we dated for a few months, and then after that, I asked her dad if uh, I could marry her, and, and he gave some sort of response like, uh, what's that to me? That's her decision. And I said, I oh, know, but I'm asking for your permission. And it was kind of an awkward uh, exchange. But uh, I think typically those tend to be awkward. I have a buddy who, uh, whose uh, future father-in-law said, okay, but if she says no, that means no. And then he just stared and didn't say another word for like 30 <laughs> seconds. So could have been worse, my experience. But uh, I asked her dad. He said, uh, sure. We then go and tell her mom, and so she wants to know, you know, do you already have a ring picked out, uh, any of these sorts of things. And so I tell her that my mom has promised that uh, she would give me her wedding ring. And, uh, and so Casey's mom, to my surprise, gets all excited, and she says, I have a ring too. I'd like to give you this ring. And I said, great, I'd love it. And so she gives me a ring, and then a couple of days later, she calls me and says, Casey's grandmother would also like to donate a ring. Great, I'll take it as well. And, uh, and then a couple of days later, I'm not making this up, a couple of days later she calls me and says uh, that Casey's aunt wants to donate some jewelry as well. Like uh, she, had some, uh, she had a ring and then she had uh, some earrings or something like that. Uh, and then my dad calls me up and says, you know, son, I lost my wedding ring at one point, got a new one, and then I found my original wedding ring, so I'd like to give you the replacement one that I had. And so all these people were giving me rings. It was kind of like uh, Israel plundering the Egyptians. That's what I felt like. And so I had this collection. I was like Mr. T. I had this collection of, uh, of jewelry. And so I took all of this into uh, some sort of jeweler. 
and uh, wanted to design a ring for uh, Casey, wanted to, to design a, a, an engagement ring and then also a wedding band. And so I had them take the uh, center stone from her grandmother's uh, ring and use that in the center of the engagement ring and then take two rings from her mom or two diamonds from her mom's uh, ring and then put those on the side. And that was the engagement ring. So the engagement ring is made up of stones from her grandmother's ring and also stones from her mom's ring. And then the wedding band, if you ever uh, are looking at my wife's hands, uh, the, uh, the wedding band is actually made up entirely of little bitty I don't know what they're called, uh, little bitty diamonds from my mom's ring. So kind of the symbolism is the engagement ring is all Casey's family and the wedding ring is my family to kind of show this sort of merging that happens in our marriage. And so I'm obviously proud of these rings and the story behind it. I used all the other rings in order to actually afford this. So I got to sell all of that and they melted it down or whatever they do with uh, those kinds of things. And uh, so I'm obviously proud of these rings. I love those rings. Casey loves those rings. Larkin, my daughter, loves to play with those rings. Whenever she does, she plays with those rings or she'll play with my wedding ring. And I'll tell her, this is a wedding ring. And it means that, uh, that mommy and daddy are married. It means that mommy loves daddy very much and daddy loves mommy very much. That is, in a sense, what, uh, what uh, first century Jews thought of circumcision. That circumcision is this sign that Yahweh loves the Jews very much and the Jews love the Lord very much. The problem with this, though, is that sometimes a sign doesn't actually symbolize the thing it's intended to signify. Sometimes a sign doesn't actually symbolize the thing that it's intended to signify. So you can have a ring and not actually be married. In fact, a lot of people in the service industry, especially uh, young women, uh, are tired of guys hitting on them, and so they'll just wear uh, an engagement ring or they'll wear a wedding ring uh, to kind of uh, chase off prospective suitors or something like that. So you can have a ring and not be married. Likewise, you can be married and not have a ring. When Casey takes her rings off in order to wash the dishes, uh, she doesn't cease to be married. Zach talked about this in uh, Theological Equipping today, that uh, uh, right after he and Katie got married, that she was playing water volleyball and the rings came off and they never found them. That didn't somehow sever their marriage, though. So you can have a ring and not be married, and you can be married and not have a ring. And that's true not only for marriage, but it's also true when it comes to the issue of justification and when it comes to the issue of circumcision. That circumcision is intended as this sign, but it doesn't always signify what it is intended to signify. In chapter 2, we really worked through this issue that simply... Being circumcised does not guarantee that you're justified. Simply because you are circumcised, that doesn't mean that you are, uh, that you are necessarily justified. That was chapter 2. But then we turn the question around. We say, but, but can you be justified without it? Yes, yes, simply being circumcised doesn't mean that you're justified. But does that mean that you can actually be justified without being circumcised? Is circumcision somehow necessary for salvation? That's our text this morning in Romans 9, uh, 4 through 12, which really becomes the major theological question of the early church. 
the major theological question of the early church is, how do Gentiles fit within this plan that we see fleshed out in the Abrahamic covenant and in the Mosaic covenant? It will become such a divisive issue in the early church that they will call kind of the first Christian conference called the Jerusalem Council, where all of the apostles uh, and various pastors from other churches will gather together in order to work out how does circumcision relate to salvation? How does the Mosaic law relate to salvation? So we're going to dive back into that discussion uh, this morning in this text. So let me pray for us, and then we will uh, dive into uh, the text together. So first, just ask you to pray for yourself. The Lord would uh, allow you to have a heart that is inclined to His Word, eyes and ears that are open and receptive, a heart and mind that's not distracted. And then would you pray that for those around you, whether they are friends or family or strangers or whatever it might be, that the Lord would do the same work in us corporately. And then lastly, would you pray for me? That I have boldness, faithfulness to His Word. So Father, we're grateful for the opportunity for us to gather this morning and to hear from Your Word. I pray that You would bless us through it, that our Uh, lives would be changed as we behold the glory of justification uh, by faith and that we would rest from our works. Um, And so help us this morning, we ask, because you're a good father, you give good gifts. You've proven that because you've given your son, Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. We'll begin in verse 9 of chapter 4 where Paul writes this, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. So I want to begin by looking at this word blessing. He says, is this blessing, what blessing is he talking about? Where if you were to go uh, back just uh, immediately preceding context, verses 6 through 8, I think we'll throw it up on the board. It says this, just as David also speaks of the blessing, there's that word, of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So we see the continuation here of the previous passage into this passage is this blessing. Paul quotes Psalm 32 and speaking of the blessing. What blessing is he talking about? The blessing of justification involving forgiveness of sin. And then in here, in verse 9, he asks this question, to whom... Does this promise, to whom does this promise of blessing, the blessing of justification, the blessing of of forgiveness, to whom does this apply? Is it only for the circumcised or is it also for those who are uncircumcised? And so a few weeks back, we talked about the importance of circumcision. If you were in theological equipping class this morning, we talked about it again because we're walking through the covenants. And so we talked about the Abrahamic covenant and the sign of the Abrahamic covenant was this uh, sign of circumcision. And so we talked about why circumcision is so important and why it dominates the first half of Romans because this is the sign of, this is the signifier of what it means to be Jewish. This is the ethnic marker of what it means to be Jewish. And so what was circumcision? We talked about this. Circumcision is the removal, not to be too graphic, but the removal of the foreskin of the male genitalia. And we talked about the fact that uh, that, uh, 
that the fact that this involved the uh, sexual organ is important because it points forward to something. God could have used something else. He could have used some other sort of uh, ethnic marker like uh, in certain tribes in Africa there's some sort of scarring or elongated ears or an elongated neck or something like that. Or he could have chosen a mullet or a flat top or some other sort of hairstyle like that. Why is it though that he chooses circumcision? If I'm Abraham, I would have preferred that he chose a mullet or a flat top or something rather than circumcision. But why does he choose circumcision? So again, we talked about this a little bit a few weeks ago, and Zach talked about it this morning, but there's a few reasons why he chooses circumcision. One is in order to distinguish Israel from the nations. Although other nations practiced circumcision to some degree, it was a particular Jewish sort of sign. The second reason, uh, so in in addition to being kind of a distinction where Israel is set apart from the other nations, they're not to look like the other nations, they are to be wholly different. Another reason uh, for God to choose circumcision as the sort of ethnic sign of the covenant is in order for it to communicate this idea of holiness. In other cultures, the cultures that did practice some form of circumcision, often not full circumcision, some sort of partial circumcision, like in Egypt, the, the circumcision that they would practice would only be for priests. And what's unique about Israel as a nation is that the entire nation is to be a nation of priests. Yes, they do have the high priest. Yes, they do have the Levitical priesthood. But in a sense, every single member is supposed to uh, be a priest. Every single one of them is supposed to have relationship with God, in covenant uh, with God. And so that's the second reason that circumcision in particular is chosen as the sign and not something else. And the third reason, and I think this is the most important reason, and it's one that, uh, that most people are not taught to growing up in church, is that uh, it's to connect the sign with that which is symbolized. The very promise that's made to Abraham is that through your seed, that word in, uh, in Greek is sperma, through your seed there is going to come an offspring. And what is that offspring going to do? That offspring is going to fulfill the law that's going to be given to Moses. That offspring is going to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, and he's going to crush the head of the serpent. That's the intention. That's the reason that it's, it's connected to the sexual organ is because there is this promise that this promise is going to be fulfilled through offspring, through seed, through the product of a sexual union. So other uh, cultures practice circumcision, but in particular, it was some sort of distinguishing mark. It was seen as the distinguishing mark of Jewishness. It was an ethnic identity marker, again, like tribal scars or uh, certain African countries or uh, kilts in Scotland or jorts or cargo shorts or something for people who just don't care. It was this sort of sign that kind of symbolized this identity of these sorts of people. So for a first century Jew, the world was not divided into black and white. It was not divided into Democrat and Republican. It was divided into those who were circumcised and those who are uncircumcised. Those who are Jews and those who are Gentiles. That was the entirety of the world in uh, first century Judaism. So the question is, is this blessing, is this blessing only for Jews, that is those who have been physically circumcised, or is it also for Gentiles who have not been physically circumcised? You see, Jews, first century Jews, generally agreed that Gentiles who converted to Judaism 
Gentiles who put themselves under the yoke of the Mosaic law, Gentiles who would be, uh, accept circumcision, Gentiles who would accept all of the precepts, all the 613 commands that were given to Israel in the wilderness, any Gentile who would do that, they could be justified. But what of those who didn't? What of Gentiles who were outside of that? Could they be saved? Could they be justified? So again, we've already seen that circumcision doesn't save us, but the text today is going to ask the question, can you be saved without it? Yes, circumcision doesn't save you, but can you be saved without it? What's the difference in those two questions? Well, think of the example of air, right? Merely having access to air doesn't guarantee that you're going to be saved. There's a, uh, or that you're going to live. There's a, a myriad of ways that you could die apart from suffocation, but you can't live apart from air. So having access to air, uh, air doesn't save you, doesn't guarantee you life, but not having air definitely guarantees you death. And so is circumcision like that? Yes, it doesn't save you, but can you be saved without it? That's our text uh, this morning. And so to answer the question, Paul writes that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness here in 4.9. Faith is counted to Abraham as righteousness. This is a callback all the way to four, chapter, three, uh, chapter 4, verse 3, which itself is a quote from Genesis 15. I think we'll put that up there. 4.3 says, for what does the Scripture say? Again, quoting Genesis 15, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This phrase here, counted as righteousness, the theological term for that is justification. And this is kind of a big deal. It's like the Ron Burgundy of Romans. This is kind of the big deal, the big theological point of Romans. Romans is about righteousness. Justification is a word that concerns the way in which we are declared or made to be righteous. Have you ever been in a situation where you didn't know somebody's name? but you waited far too long to actually ask them what their name is? Like you meet them the first time, and you get their name, and then you forget it. And at the end of the conversation, you could have asked them for a refresher, but for whatever reason, you don't. You're embarrassed, you're ashamed, and you don't. And then the next time you see them, you know you still have a little bit of grace period, so you still could ask them then. But now it's been like three years, and you're caught in this sort of incessant sort of loop, this cycle. You just call them bro or buddy or buckaroo or something like that. You ever been in that? I think that's what happens a lot of times with Christians when it comes to theological jargon, that we first get saved and we hear these big words like propitiation and justification and redemption and atonement, and, uh, and we kind of, based on the context we're reading in Scripture, we kind of figure it out, but we don't really know what it is, but then now we've been a believer for 10 years and we're kind of embarrassed to ask, so we'd never actually speak up and ask somebody, what is justification? Uh, you know, what is propitiation? What is redemption? What do these words mean? And so we're caught in this incessant sort of loop of thinking we know that what it means, but not really knowing what it, uh, it means. And so I thought it would be helpful for us to just kind of give a little bit of a definition of justification. The problem with that is that most definitions of justification are circular definitions. You familiar with a circular definition? It's when you use a word... Uh, to define itself. You use a word to define itself. So we have a number of engineers that are members here at Parkway. Maybe some of them even, uh, even work at Raytheon. I won't uh, say whether that's true or not because I think Raytheon's the kind of place that would 
be able to shoot a missile at me or something. And so uh, I don't know exactly what Raytheon does. I think it has to do with missiles and lasers and proton packs like in uh, Ghostbusters. But uh, imagine I'm talking to someone who is an engineer at uh, Raytheon, and I ask him what they do, and he or she says that uh, they are in rocket management systems, all right? That's what they do. They're in rocket management systems, and because I have a bachelor's in business and a master's in historical theology, I ask them, what in the world does that mean? What is rocket management system? And this is their response. What's a system for managing rockets? Is that helpful? Now, that's a circular definition, right? You've not given me any information that I didn't already have. This is what most definitions of justification do. Justification is to be declared righteous, is what most people say. The problem with that is that righteous and just are the exact same word. They share the exact same root in Greek. In fact, righteousness, righteous, just, justify, justification, all of those share the exact same root in Greek, dikaio, uh, dikaioi, dikaios, dikaiosune, all of these are the Greek words. All of them share the same underlying word. The only reason that we have two different English words is because there's not really a good way to turn righteous into a verb. Righteify would be the word, but that's not a word, and so we use instead the word justify. That's the reason Uh, that we do that. And so I wanted to come up with a definition, and so Zach and I sat down and we tried to uh, put together a definition, which is going to start out at first to be circular, and then we're going to straighten it out there uh, towards the end. So here's the first part of the definition of justification. The justification is the act of God. It's the act of God whereby He credits those who are unrighteous as having the status of righteous. Justification is the act of God whereby He credits those who are unrighteous as having the status of righteous. But again, just and righteous are the same sort of concept, so that's somewhat circular. So then we need to uh, define the term righteous or righteousness. And so what we said about that is that righteousness is the absence of evil and the presence of moral perfection. It's the absence of evil and the presence of moral perfection. It's a both and in its fullest theological sense that righteousness involves being free from sin In our case, being forgiven of sin, but not merely being free from sin, it's also being credited with righteousness. It's also being credited. uh, It's not merely the absence of evil, it's the presence of good. It's having this fullness of moral perfection that is attributed uh, to you. So putting those two together and you get this definition, which is up on the, uh, the screen, justification is the act of God whereby He credits those who are unrighteous as having the status of righteous, which means the absence of evil and the presence of moral perfection. That's what Paul has just said about Abraham. It's counted to Abraham as righteousness. In other words, Abraham has been justified. In other words, Abraham has, by an act of God, been credited with righteousness, which means the absence of evil and the presence of moral perfection. Again, this concept of justification is at the heart of, of Romans and the heart of our salvation. That is the heart uh, of how we are reconciled to God, how uh, we are united to God. So again, it's kind of a big deal. So is this justification, this declaration of righteousness, is this blessing that's promised and prophesied in passages like Psalm 32, is it reserved for the circumcised or is it also available for the uncircumcised as well? And Paul will answer that question in the subsequent verses by saying that it's on the basis of faith 
and not on the basis of an act like circumcision. And he demonstrates that by upholding Abraham as this sort of exemplar, this example of this reality that is justification by faith. So let's look at verse 10. He writes, How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Think about you, when you are a kid, how important chronological order is to you as a kid. How important chronological order is to you as a kid. Whenever you and your siblings would get into a fight and your parents would come, and what would they ask you? Who started it? That would be one of the first questions that they would ask. This uh, sort of chronological order is going to be essential. Seating arrangements in a car is on the basis of who calls shotgun first, right? The rules of shotgun are unassailable, right? You call shotgun first, you get it. No matter, you know, if anyone else calls it louder or whatever it might be, or how many times, it's just simply who calls it first. Whenever you would ask for a cookie, your parents would tell you, eat your veggies first. When someone would cut in front of you in line at lunch or whatever it might be, you would say, but I was here first. Maybe some of you as adults do that still at the DMV or the post office or wherever it might be. So there are these situations where chronological order is going to be really important, where timing is important. And Paul is going to use this as uh, imagery uh, here in this passage. And so this is definitely true when it comes to the issue of circumcision and justification. The timing is going to be essential. So we need to understand this timing if we're going to understand Uh, what Paul is talking about. And what Paul says is that Abraham receives covenantal grace before he receives the covenantal sign. That he receives covenantal grace, that is the blessing of justification, before he receives the sign of that covenant that is circumcision. The order is essential. And this is a brilliant, brilliant insight by Paul. He recognizes something That is, that Abraham is declared righteous in Genesis 15, but the sign of circumcision is not given until Genesis 17. So his point is this, if Abraham can be counted righteous or justified apart from circumcision, then so can Gentiles. If Abraham can be justified, if Abraham can be counted righteous apart from circumcision, then so can Gentiles. Justification must be available to the uncircumcised because Abraham himself was uncircumcised. But you might be asking the question, what's two chapters? We're talking about Genesis 15 versus Genesis 17. Some of you in this room could probably read Genesis 15 through Genesis 17 while holding your breath. So what's two chapters? You're building an entire theology on the fact that Genesis 15 is before Genesis 17. How can that be so important? We're only talking about two chapters. The problem with this, though, is that we're not just talking about two chapters. We're not talking just about two chapters. We're talking about all the events that happen in Abraham's life between those two chapters. And there is this huge gap. It's not merely two chapters. It's two or three decades. In fact, according to sort of the Jewish traditional teaching Jewish tradition held that there were 29 years that passed between Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. I don't know the record for holding your breath, but I know it's not that. 29 years that passes. Think about how long ago 29 years were. 29 years ago, it was still the 1980s. Think about that. 
Jerry Jones had just purchased the Cowboys 29 years ago in like two months or something like that. Parkway, this church, was still meeting in a white clapboard chapel. You can now see it as a historic monument in Chestnut Square. Parkway was still meeting there. Tim Hollis wasn't even born yet. Carl Brower had long, flowing, dark hair. True story, dangerously bordering on a mullet. That's why I make fun of mullets, because of Carl. I have pictures. It's in a little album I call Blackmail, just in case he ever makes me mad or something like that. Now, we don't know, biblically, we don't know explicitly if it's 29 years. I think that might be a bit of hyperbole. As I read it, uh, the Bible doesn't explicitly say how long it is between Genesis 15 and 17. The Bible does say that between Genesis 16 and 17, there's 13 years, and there's at least some period of time between 15 and 16. So whether it's 15 years or 30 years or whatever it might be, uh, the point is it is a very, very long gap. We're not talking about something that is menial. We're not talking about uh, a matter of a couple of seconds or minutes or hours or days or whatever it might be. The time between when, when uh, Abraham is justified and when he is circumcised is going to be highly significant It's not just incidental, it's profoundly important for theological reasons because it emphasizes that faith and not circumcision is the basis of this declaration of righteousness, and therefore circumcision must not be necessary for justification. So the sign is going to be important. Circumcision is certainly important in the Abrahamic covenant and in the Mosaic uh, covenant. The sign is important, but justification comes before the sign. And if justification can come before the sign, then justification can't be dependent upon the sign. Because of this chronological order, there is also this theological order that Paul is pointed to. If Abraham could be justified without circumcision, then why can't the Gentiles? That's Paul's point. You see here, it's not merely theoretical. It's missiological. It's soteriological. It's ecclesiological as we understand the nature of the church, as we understand the nature of missions, as we understand the nature of salvation. So any sort of misunderstanding in this issue is going to confuse all of those sorts of things. Now, there is a sense, and we'll talk about this in theological equipping in a few weeks, there is a sense sense in which circumcision is analogous to baptism. Circumcision is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant and, in a sense, also a sign of the Mosaic covenant whereas baptism is the sign of the new covenant. And so there's a sense in which those things kind of mirror each other. Uh, they, kind of, uh, they kind of are an analogy for each other. Circumcision is a type, uh, and baptism is the fulfillment of that type. It's called the uh, anti-type. Uh, so there's a sense in which circumcision is analogous uh, to baptism. Uh, but this text is going to help us avoid a couple of errors as it relates to baptism. Again, the text is not about baptism, but because of that analogy, I think this text is going to help us to recognize a couple of things that we could say uh, that would be erroneous as we try to apply this to our context. First, some could read this. Some could read this and they could say, well, because Abraham was justified before being circumcised, therefore, I don't need to be baptized today. If Abraham can be justified apart from circumcision, then I guess that means that I can be saved apart from baptism. And while there's a sense, absolutely, you can be saved apart from baptism, that doesn't mean that baptism is not important. The reason that Abraham is not circumcised 
until years after he's justified. It's not because he's just fearful or he's apathetic. It's because God's command had not been given. He had not been told to be circumcised. You see, Abraham was justified before he's circumcised, but he's circumcised the moment that he's commanded to be circumcised. Likewise, in our context, the reason that this would not be a good analogy would be because every one of us today has been commanded to repent, believe, and to be baptized. There is no delay between the time that we're justified and the time that God would demand us to be baptized. That would be an erroneous sort of extension of this uh, text. On the other hand, this passage is going to give a really good critique for anybody who would say that baptism is therefore now necessary for salvation. As circumcision was not necessary for justification, so baptism is not necessary for justification. There are churches that teach that. And in fact, some of our people grew up in traditions that actually taught that, that baptism is necessary for salvation. Now, baptism is much, 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 much more important than our evangelical culture tends to, uh, to say. But we don't swing the pendulum all the way from unimportant or relatively unimportant all the way over to thinking that it is somehow essential for salvation, that we, as we, as Abraham was justified before being circumcised, so we are justified apart from baptism. And our response is therefore to be baptized. We don't solve the problem, though, because our culture uh, is relatively lax on baptism. We don't sw- uh, solve that problem by swinging the pendulum all the way to the other end and making this some sort of a, uh, a necessity uh, for salvation. Just like whenever you're driving a car and you begin to feel yourself drift over to the rumble strips on one side, the, the, the solution is not to jerk the wheel all the way to the other shoulder right through the uh, oncoming traffic. And so justification, according to this passage, is by faith and not circumcision. We see that as evidenced by Abraham. Likewise, we're commanded to be baptized uh, and yet baptism itself does not justify, it doesn't save us, it's not necessary for sal- salvation in the way that some might, uh, might teach. And so before we move on, I want to bring up one potential objection that I think is going to be important for us. So Paul is putting a huge amount of weight on this issue of chronological order. When it is that uh, Abraham is actually justified, and he says that Abraham is justified uh, by faith, Uh, back in Genesis 15, well before he's circumcised in Genesis 17. The quote-unquote problem with that, the potential objection that we might have to that, is that James is going to say what seems to be something contradictory. That whenever you're reading the book of James, that James mentions that Abraham is justified much later in life. According to James, Abraham is not justified in chapter 15 of Genesis. He's not justified in chapter 17 of Genesis. He's not justified in 18 or 19 or 20 or 21. It's all the way in chapter 22 of Genesis whenever uh, Abraham offers up his son Isaac. We'll see this in James 2.21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? So that seems like a contradiction. Both the how... That is justification by faith versus justification by works. And the when seem to be much different between James and uh, Paul. And so passages like this absolutely drove the great reformer Martin Luther crazy 
That's why he called the book of James this right strawy epistle. He didn't know what to do with James. So what is it that we are to do with it? Well, really simply, I think what's helpful for us is to recognize that we use different words in different contexts with different meanings. Paul and James are dealing with different contexts. They're dealing with different circumstances. They're using the same word in a different way for a different time in a different place. Paul is dealing with the declaration of righteousness, whereas James is using uh, the word for the demonstration of righteousness. Paul's talking about the initial declaration of righteousness. James is talking about the demonstration of righteousness. For both Paul and James, they agree there's not an actual contradiction between the two. They actually both agree. For both of them, there's a sense in which Abraham is justified in chapter 15. There's also a sense in which justification is verified, it's demonstrated, it's validated in chapter 22. So they're using the same word, but with different nuances. We've talked about that before. I might say, if I'm talking to someone, that my daughter is a woman, and then I'm talking to someone else, I might say that my daughter is not a woman, and I'm not actually contradicting myself. Why? Because in the first conversation where I said that my daughter is a woman, I simply mean that she's not a man. She's female. She's not a male. In the other conversation where I say she's not a woman, I'm having a conversation about how the fact that she's still a little girl. She's going to be two in a couple of months. So I'm distinguishing her as a little girl from her as an adult. And so I'm using the same language, and it seems contradictory, but I'm not actually contradicting myself because I'm talking about different contexts. That's what's happening in James versus uh, Paul, that Abraham is declared righteous by faith in chapter 15, but in chapter 22, that faith and righteousness are demonstrated in action. They're using the same word in different ways. So are we justified by faith alone? Well, we have to define our terms. What do we mean by justified? What do we mean by faith? And what do we mean by alone? We're declared righteous by faith alone and not works of the Mosaic law, not works in general. That's Paul's concern. But true faith is never alone. It's always going to bear fruit that verifies or demonstrates the nature of that faith and distinguishes that type of faith from the type of faith that uh, James would say even the demons believe. That's James's concern. You have Paul's concern and James's concern. By the way, Paul explicitly shares James's concern. Later on in Romans, we'll see uh, that he has a very strong concern that we don't uh, have the type of faith that would manifest itself as being sort of empty and, uh, and vain. But let's look at uh, the next section. In verses 11 through 12, Romans 4, 11 through 12, that is he, that's uh, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So we've been talking about the importance of covenants and theological equipping. We do theological equipping every Sunday at 9 a.m., so immediately before this service. And what we're talking about this semester, uh, or at least Uh, this month is covenants, that covenants are God's gracious response to man's sin. And we talked about the fact that most covenants have some sort of sign associated with them. And so throughout the Old Testament, you'll see 
signs associated with uh, covenants, whether they're covenants between God and man or covenants made between other men, covenants uh, that man makes with himself. So we, we've talked about the fact that uh, in the book of Ruth, you have this uh, covenant that is made, this contract that is made uh, where someone has to remove their sandal and hand it to them as a sign of their oath. Uh, we've talked about before how Abraham has sent out his servant and made him swear that he's going to find, uh, he's going to do his best to find a, a wife for his son Isaac. And so he makes his servant put his hand under his thigh as a, uh, a sign of that oath. We talked about the covenants that God makes with uh, mankind, and each of them tends to have a sign associated with it. So the Noahic covenant, the, the covenant that God makes with Noah, has a rainbow as a sign that God has laid his weapon down. No longer will he flood the entire earth as a sign, a demonstration of, the, of his wrath. And the bow is pointed upward as if God is saying, if I break my covenant, may I be struck through the heart with this arrow. And in the Abrahamic covenant, there is this sign of circumcision that is given. And so covenantal signs are functioning as signs and seals. That's the language that's used here in this passage. You receive the sign of circumcision as a seal a sign and seal, this similar to the way that, that you sign your signature. Even in the word signature, you see the root word sign there. You sign your signature in order to seal a contract. The sign confirms or documents or ratifies or authenticates it. Does anybody remember the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? Anybody remember how long ago that came out? 29 years ago, coincidentally. I actually had this analogy in there and looked it up, and it was actually 29 years ago. So add that to the list of things that happened 29 years ago. So Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which wasn't the actual Last Crusade because they made another movie about it that had crystal skulls and aliens and that kid from Even Stevens uh, and those kinds of things. But anyway, in this movie, there's kind of a, a pivotal scene where uh, Indiana Jones and his dad, Sean Connery, are uh, on this blimp. And, uh, and so Indy gets into a, a fight with this Nazi, and he punches him, and he throws him off the blimp. And then everyone's staring at him, and, uh, and he just deadpans, and he says, no ticket. And everybody then pulls out their ticket, because they don't want to get thrown off, right? Well, for a first century Jew, uh, that was similar to their view of uh, circumcision, that no circumcision equals no justification, and so God throws you off the justification blimp. Well, the problem with that is that Abraham was allowed onto the justification blimp by God long before he was given a ticket. So the ticket can't be necessary to get on because Abraham was allowed on long before he got the ticket. So the order that we pointed to in the previous verse is important, not only because it shows that righteousness is counted by faith and not works like circumcision, but also because it's going to foreshadow something that is the inclusion of of Gentiles. This room is only possible because of this foreshadowing. Most of us, if not all of us in this room, none of us in this room probably are purely ethnically Jewish. You might have, you might have done like a 23andMe or something like that. You might have a small little percentage of Jewishness in you, but none of us are ethnically Jewish. And so the only reason that we can gather together and worship this God of Israel is because of this promise, this foreshadowing that God is going to reconcile Gentiles uh, unto Himself. And so long before Abraham is circumcised in chapter 17, long before Abraham is justified in chapter 15, all the way back in chapter 12, God first calls Abraham and says this to him. 
Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now think about that in light of Romans. Do you hear hints of that in our passage in Romans? That Abraham received righteousness before circumcision, according to Romans, so that he might be a father. Familial language to all who walk in the same faith. He is a father to all the families of the earth, which was the original intent of God's call of Abraham back in Genesis 12. This blessing for all the families of the earth was always the intention for Israel See, the church is not this sort of parenthesis in God's plan. The church is the divine intention. God's plan always involved the reconciliation of the world unto Himself. People from every tongue, tribe, and nation. God's purposes and plans were never intended to be eternally restricted to just one nation. It was always for God's glory to cover the earth like the waters cover the seas. So the mission of the church is to go and to make disciples of all nations. That's not just a New Testament command. That's the very hope embedded in the initial call of Abraham that Israel was to be a light not unto itself, not to circle the wagons, but to be a light for the whole world that they might come and they might see the glory of God. So Abraham being the father of all the families of the earth is a fulfillment of that hope. We aren't going to sing Father Abraham and many sons and do all the hand motions that you might have learned in church as a kid or anything like that. But there's really a profound truth that's embedded in that song, that's embedded in that reality. You see, for Jews, they had no problem wrapping their minds around the idea that Gentiles could become sons of Abraham in a sense. But for them, that was only going to come through them becoming Jewish taking on all of these sort of ethnic markers, circumcision and the Mosaic law and all of these sorts of things. They had to take on all of these aspects of ritual in order to become uh, partakers of the covenant. But Paul blows all of that up. He says, if faith justifies rather than outward ritual, then righteousness can be credited to those who have the faith even without the outward ritual. So this is going to cut both ways. This is actually going to be a a two-edged sword. On one hand, it means that Abraham is the father of Gentiles in the faith. But it also means, on the other hand, it also means that he's not the father of Jews who do not share this faith culminating in Christ. As Paul later writes in Romans, not all Israel belong to Israel. Not all Jews are Jews in this new covenantal sense. The reason is because Jesus himself is the true Jew. He is the true offspring of Israel. The question is never now, are you ethnically related to Abraham? The question is, are you spiritually related to Jesus? That's the question. All of the promises that God makes are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So the question is not, are you ethnically related to Abraham? The question is, are you spiritually united to Jesus? This is going to get some sort of uh, uh, anti-Semitism claim from the cultural tone police, but that's the implication here. 
that only those who believe in Jesus has God of, has, have God as a father, and only those who have God as father can claim Abraham as father. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have the father. If you don't have the father, then you don't have Abraham as your father. If you're disowned by your spiritual father, then you can't claim your physical father. In other words, if you're asking the question, who is the true Jew? Who are the descendants of Abraham in this new covenantal sort of sense? The answer to that is that it doesn't matter if you have the same blood as Abraham, but do you have the same belief? It's not a question of are you of the same family, but are you of the same faith? It's not a matter of ethnicity. It's a matter of election. It's not a matter of genealogy. It's a matter of God's grace to us. It's God's grace that justifies us. So what does this have to do with you and me? Parkway is not being torn apart like the early church was with questions of circumcision. There's not this ethnic uh, tension that exists between Jews and Gentiles uh, and this constant turmoil where some are being overlooked in the distribution of meals and all of these sorts of things. So what does this have to do with us? We're good Protestants who believe in justification by faith, and yet we are exactly the kind of people who need to hear this type of message today not because we're ethnically Jewish, not because we stand up here and we preach or teach from stage or in our community groups. We don't preach or teach justification by works. That's not the reason. But because most of us are in danger of being good church folk who might profess justification by faith with our lips, and yet the vast majority of our lives are lived as if we believe in justification by works. Right now, my little girl has a pick line. If you're familiar with this, it stands for peripherally inserted central catheter. So she has a line, a little like IV, that goes up into her arm right here. And uh, it goes, and the line sits right above her heart. And then that's where we give her her uh, antibiotics uh, every day. And, uh, and so the process for doing that is the acronym SASH, S-A-S-H. S, saline, we have to wash the line. Uh, before we put in the antibiotics. Then we put the A, the antibiotics. Then we put more saline in there. And then the H is heparin. We put that in order. It's a blood thinner in order to keep the line uh, from, uh, from clotting. And before we put in the, uh, the saline and the heparin, we have to do that thing that doctors do on movies or television or whatever it might be where they squeeze a little bit of a bubble of liquid out of the top. The reason we do that is because we don't want air uh, to get into her veins because air in her veins can be a very bad thing that can cause an, an embolism, uh, which could ultimately lead to a pulmonary embolism or something like that, which could be super uh, dangerous. Likewise, even a little bit of works in our justification can have horrifying consequences for us. And yet, if we're not careful, we can be in danger of injecting just a little bit of works, just having a little bit of a spiritual embolism in our lives. And as there are physical signs of a physical embolism, so there's spiritual signs that we might have injected a little bit of works into our justification. And so I want to close just by asking this question, how might we know? How might we know if we're preaching, if we're believing on some level justification by faith, but on another level we're resting in justification by works? What are the signs so imagine you have a bad day where you just blew it. Imagine you have a horrible day. Whatever that is for you, you yelled at your wife, you yelled at your kid, you yelled at your husband, you showed a certain finger that you shouldn't have to someone in traffic, you said a certain word to a coworker, 
that you shouldn't have. You looked at something that you shouldn't have. You told a lie. You didn't do something you should have done. Sins aren't merely sins of uh, uh, commission, but also sins of omission. Maybe there are certain things that you should have done that you didn't do. Whatever it is for you, you know your weaknesses and struggles better uh, than I do. So fill in the blank as it most applies to you. You have this super horrible day where you just absolutely blow it and you lay your head on your pillow that night. What's going through your mind? What's going through your mind in that moment? Thoughts of condemnation and shame? Thoughts of guilt? Or are you grateful for the gratitude or, or grateful for the grace and mercy of God who justifies the unjust? When you sin, whatever it is that you struggle with, whenever you fall into some sort of temptation, do you run toward Christ? Or do you run away and hide in isolation, in food or drink, video games, in work, in leisure, in hobbies? Do you feel as though God doesn't love you? Or He's angry with you? Or that He merely tolerates you? He's kind of apathetic toward you. You think he's just waiting to love some future version of you. The moment that you just, if you could just conquer this one area of your life, if you could just clean yourself up in this one area, then God would really accept me. Then God would really approve of me. Then God would really love me. Do you struggle with stress and anxiety and depression and despair and thoughts of condemnation and guilt and shame? All of these are little air bubbles in your spiritual IV. They're signs that you've mixed to some degree. You've mixed just a little bit of works into your justification. Each is an indication that on some level you're resting in something other than the finished work of King Jesus. So this morning, church, we need to hear the message of this text, which is that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. And that's the only way that righteousness is counted to us as well is by faith. So, the question before us is, will we rest in faith or will we try to work for rest? Let's pray as the men come forward to distribute the elements for communion. Father, I thank You for Your Word this morning. I thank You that You are a God who is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin and You show steadfast love and faithfulness to a thousand generations of those who love you and keep your word. I thank you for this new covenant provision and fulfillment that we see in Jesus Christ who was made sin for us that we might in him become the righteousness of God, that we might be declared just, that we might be declared righteous, all of our sins forgiven all of His goodness imputed to us. And so I thank You for that this morning. I pray that You would help expose any areas of our lives, Lord, even if it's 1% or less than 1% where we are resting in anything other than faith, Lord. Would You expose that, that we might put it to death, that we might experience greater joy by resting in the finished work of Your Son. And so help us, Lord, as a church, as individuals as well. We pray these things because You're a good Father. You delight in this message of justification by faith, and you desire for us to rest in it. So would you help us? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.